Hello and welcome to Cumber Baptist Church Podcast. The following is taken from our morning service, Sunday 8th of December, 2019. This morning we are joined by Henry Capper, who takes his reading from Luke, chapter 1, verses 5 to 25 and brings us a message entitled, The Beginning of Christmas. Thank you Alfie for, for sharing with us and informing and challenging us with that. And I hope that you would respond accordingly to that urgent issue. I'm going to turn to, to God's word in, in, a, in a moment. Um, let me just, if you want to get your Bibles open, and you can t- turn to, to Luke chapter 1. As we're thinking of as we're thinking of, of Advent and, and the arrival of, of the, the birth of Jesus. The temptation with, with the Christmas story, once we start to hear talks based on it, once our mind starts to think about all that goes on in the incarnation and that narrative, is immediately to jump and to start with Jesus being born in a manger. That's understandable. We can, we can get that. There's maybe a, an urgency, an eagerness, a desperation within all of us to, to get quickly to Jesus being born. That's what we're used to. That's what we're accustomed to. Think of the nativity scene. That's what is based around it. Jesus being born. But a thought-provoking question to ask is this. Where does the Bible start with the Christmas story? More specifically than that, where do the the gospel writers, where does Matthew, Mark, Luke and John start when telling the Christmas story? How do they go about preparing their readers for the arrival of Jesus? You You may be aware, you may know this, but only two of the gospels include the incarnation story. That's Matthew and Luke. It's actually kind of fascinating. So really what what Mark and John are saying to us is that you can know fully all you need to know about Jesus without knowing about his birth. His birth actually isn't that crucial to Mark and John. But what all the gospel writers do include in tremendous detail is Jesus dying on a cross which tells us something more significant. This is the important, the central aspect of the life of Jesus. It's not actually his birth, but it is his death on a cross and subsequent resurrection three days later. Matthew starts by outlining the the genealogy of of Jesus. He goes right back to Abraham, um, to the family tree, and he proceeds with the angels announcing to Joseph who this child will be and and what will he do? But what about Luke? Well, how does Luke start? Where does his Christmas begin? Well, Luke's Christmas doesn't begin with a, a genealogy or the, the Virgin Mary in the, in the back of a stable. If it was a stable at all, probably not. No, Luke starts off with an elderly lady who is barren and her husband who is a priest. Now, we don't see that in the nativity. We don't see that once we go into the faith mission to get a Christmas card. We don't see that picture of an elderly lady and 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 her husband who is also elderly and who is a priest. 
It's not the story we expect to hear about. It might not even be the story we even actually associate with Christmas, if we're being honest. We expect to hear lots about Jesus, and rightly so. We might actually expect to hear about other characters, about Mary, Joseph, the wise men, so on and so forth. But one story which is sometimes left in a dark corner concerns the birth of the forerunner of Jesus, the child that would be called John the Baptist, the relative of Jesus, and the son to this couple, Elizabeth and Zachariah. So, with our Bibles open, let's read a portion of Scripture, um, starting in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. We'll read down to verse 25 to get the real scope of what is being conveyed to us this morning. This is, this is God's Word, Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. And her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by law to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute, and when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among people. We know God will bless the public reading 
of his word. Please do keep your Bibles open as we'll be really just journeying through in this passage this morning. There's something that, that captures the human heart when a well-constructed story is presented to us. Whether, whether it's fact or, or if it's fiction, we become really engrossed in the narrative of maybe it's a great novel, maybe it's a, a television series, or maybe it's just a, a one-off movie. Yet no story, I would argue, can grip our imagination than a classic fairy tale. Get in your, your mind. You, you might think about uh, Peter Pan, might think of Alice in Wonderland or, or Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. These, these classic fairy tales. And what we have in the opening of, of Luke's Gospel, particularly in verses 5 to 7, is, is reminiscent of a fairy tale. We could almost translate or paraphrase those verses like this. Once upon a time, in the hill country lived an elderly married couple. Luke starts off there with his Christmas story. But it's not right away where he begins as we read verse 5a. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. Known as Herod the Great, this man was, was great for, for something, and that was for, for building, for having lots of, of structures and lots of road networks put in place. But we could not say that Herod was great in regards to his, his character. might know more about who Herod was, but he was a man of very, very few morals. He was a, a fierce and a, a jealous king. Many will know that he was known for his, his cruel and, and sinister acts. One in particular, which is recorded for us in, in Matthew chapter tw- 2, that he would try his best to, to kill Jesus by decreeing a law to wipe out all the newborn males up to the age of 2. He was really, quite simply, a bloodthirsty maniac. It was said of him, no man's life was safe and no woman's life was secure. If we read verse 5 as, oh, there was a king called Herod, and then sort of park that in our mind and, and move on and think nothing about it, we've actually immediately gone off course. We've missed the context that Luke is trying to say. One, uh, one pastor uh, puts this paraphrase, which I think is, is really helpful um, to get really what is being communicated here in Luke chapter 1. And it's simply this. In the darkest and most evil days that men can remember. This is what's going on. In the darkest and most evil days that men can remember. But adding to this, this darkness was, was the apparent silence of God through his prophets. See, there had been nothing for for 400 years, not a word uttered from from any prophet from God. And then this king, King Herod, shows up on the scene. The world was was just a simply desolate place. And even the most faithful adherent, the most God-honoring individual, must have really struggled to comprehend what was going on to try to make sense on how God was going to intervene 
400 years of silence and now this bloodthirsty maniac comes on to the scene. But here comes God's intervention 400 years later and it comes with a man called Zechariah. There was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. What, uh, what's this about Abijah? What does that mean? Well, you may know Old Testament and uh, Levitical structure. Priests were, were split into to 24 divisions. Uh, they were tasked with being on duty in the temple, which was in Jerusalem, twice a year. And they would do that for an entire week. And this man, Zechariah, fell within one of those 24 divisions. And his division was named Abijah. But Zechariah wasn't alone. He had a companion, as we know, and her name was Elizabeth. Verse 5b says, And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Elizabeth was the daughter of uh, another priest named Aaron. Now, it wasn't essential for a priest to, to marry uh, another individual from a priestly line, like what Zechariah has done, but it certainly was, was a special blessing for him. And what a, what a wonderful couple these two appear to be. Everything seems to be going so well for them in the, in the story. They seem to be living the quintessential life, and everything seems to be going uh, rosy. But... Another point we need to consider is where this couple came from. And it's, it's worth noting for, for a number of reasons. In verse 39 of Luke chapter 1, Mary decides to, to visit her relative Elizabeth. And we read that. Uh, she traveled up to the hill country to an unspecified town in Judah. Now, now what is the significance of this? Well, the significance of this is that it's not significant at all. There's no significance. And really that's the point that Luke is trying to convey here. And here it is. We have an elderly couple who live far into the countryside, far from the major cities, far from any area of our place of influence. An elderly couple happily live in their lives in the serenity of obscurity. In, in verse 6, Luke informs us that they're, they're both righteous individuals before God. They've walked blameless. That doesn't make them, them sinless, but they were faithful to God. And that makes what we read in verse 7 even more difficult to comprehend. Though this couple were blameless, they loved, worshipped God, they were burdened. They had no children, Elizabeth was barren. And the likelihood of that changing was slim as they are both advanced in years. They had no children, which meant no future, no son to carry on the family name. And children throughout most generations, throughout mo most societies, have always been considered to be a blessing. But in earlier times, 2,000 years ago, particularly for, for good Jews as Elizabeth and Zachariah, where they knew that children were a blessing from the Lord. Having a, a child brought about significant value to the mother. It brought great blessing to her uh, and to, 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 to her family. It gave her a great sense of identity. To not have children was significant. Often it was a result of, of God's judgment. 
for the sins of, of parents or, or previous generations' disobedience. For Elizabeth and Zachariah, they were going to need the same miraculous intervention that Sarah and Abraham needed with Isaac. And all of this, this, this context, all this, this background information, which is really important, reinforces our first point that we must consider. God was using blameless yet barren people. God was using ordinary and obscure of society to intervene into this world of chaos. To bring about not specifically the light, but the one who would talk about and point toward the light. What we have in the account of Zechariah and Elizabeth is God working out his extraordinary purposes in an ordinary situation. There's nothing spectacular, nothing dramatic about this couple, nothing unique about their geographical location. Actually, it was very remote. In fact, really what we have is just ordinary people just living ordinary lives. What a beautiful characteristic this is of our God once we, once we stop and once we pause and once we consider this. We see this time and time again in Scripture. Individuals who are obscured, maybe the, the alien, the, the, the foreigner, the person who is on the, 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 the periphery of society, and God uses them. Prime example of that would have to be the, the disciples that Jesus chooses. Jesus doesn't go for the, the elite. Jesus doesn't go for the, the religious leaders, the, the powerful, the wealthy. Yes, Jesus interacts with, with many of them, but Jesus chooses his followers of those who just have run-of-the-mill jobs often. Fishermen, people who, who have just been really the laypersons of society. Think of the, the people Jesus spent time with. Yes, again, he interacted with the, the elite, but by and large, Jesus interacted with the poor, the needy, those who needed help and assistance. It's a beautiful characteristic of God, and we see that in our own lives today. Outside of, of Scripture in, in 2019, we see that God uses the, the ordinary God uses not the spectacular to bring about his glorious purposes. And we can be encouraged that, that God is, has not stopped that. God is still in that, that business today. He is, he is seeking those who, who know deep down that really that they acknowledge that, that they aren't anything spectacular. And, it, and would that be you? Would that be me this morning? That we acknowledge that in and of ourselves, do you know what I mean? There, there's nothing fantastic. We can talk a great game, but we, 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 we aren't absolutely phenomenal individuals. Actually, once we look more at our, ourselves, we realize how, how messy and how broken we are. But in his mercy, God uses the ordinary, the obscure, even the, the barren, those when it seems impossible and when miracle needs to take place to be used as his vessels. We're nothing spectacular. You're nothing spectacular. Let me encourage you by telling you, you are nothing spectacular. But God can use you. He might not use you in the specific situation that we have just read um, this morning. Actually, he certainly will not. 
But God can use you. God longs and wills to use you. God longs for you to acknowledge that outside of himself, you're you're ordinary human being. And that takes that takes humility. That takes a, a dose of, of realism to acknowledge and to affirm that in our lives. But on the other side, we can be encouraged that God, and so, so blown away that God would, in his mercy, use us in, in various different areas of our lives. That, that even in, in a, a, a cup of cold water given in the name of Jesus can bring glory to the Father. That God can, can use you and me. We're ordinary. That doesn't make us worthless and useless. God longs to use us. God doesn't need us. But God wants to use us. And he used Elizabeth and Zachariah in a powerful way. That leads us on into the main conversation, the main bulk of what uh, Luke presents with this, with this story. And it's from verse 8 to 23. It was the day of all days. There's a, a Jewish historian, his, his name is Josephus, and he conservatively reckons that within the, these 24 uh, priestly divisions that they're contained about 20,000 priests. So just think about that, 20,000 priests. So as, as the lots were cast and, and Zechariah is drawn out, you could just imagine his response. This was Zechariah's big break. Today was the day. It was the day of days, the day he had dreamed of. He had the greatest privilege of representing his, his, his priestly line, his division, he had the joy of entering the temple to burn incense to the Lord. That would have been the supreme honor for this man, for his job. This was the pinnacle for him and his, his career, but also for his life. 20,000 to one odds. Not going to ask you to do the mass. I've already done it. But that is not point, not, not 5% of a chance. He could have waited his entire life. A once in a lifetime opportunity had knocked on his door. It's similar to sort of to sort of uh, sort of deepen this point to the honor felt by an athlete representing their nation at the Olympics. Maybe standing on the on the podium getting their Olympic medal. The pride that that must instill. Are the proud student waiting in line to receive their, their certificate, their, their degree at their, their graduation? All that hard work, and here it is in a moment. Now, just like with the, the, the example I give with Herod, we could easily read this and, and not grasp the real significance of what this meant to a man like Zechariah. This was his big chance. But within an instance, the narrative swings like a pendulum. Zechariah just couldn't have predicted what was about to take place. In verse 11, Zechariah is met by the angel Gabriel. Just like every instance, once an angel appears in Scripture, nobody expects it and fear descends. And we read that in verse 12. And Gabriel has arrived with a purpose, and that is to announce a message from God. And it's a message that should have brought spontaneous rejoicing from Zechariah. 
Gabriel has been told to pass on the message that Elizabeth will, will give birth to a son and that this son that Zechariah will father, he won't be any ordinary boy. Read with me. Look at these verses. Verse 14. He will bring his parents joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. Verse 15. He will be great before the Lord. Again, verse 15. A boy filled with the Holy Spirit. And then we read in in verses 16 and 17, talk about a prophecy. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Talk about an announcement. And you're thinking, could this day get even better or could it even surpass his wildest dream Zechariah faithful Jew patiently had been trusting and waiting for this this promised individual this this messiah that was going to come and save the people God's people and despite years of barrenness yet remaining uh, righteous and blameless Gabriel now tells him that your son, Zechariah, your son is going to be the one that would turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He would be a key player in pointing to the Messiah. Oh, this must have been the sweetest of days for Zechariah. And then we go on and read that Zechariah responds with glorious praise and thanks to Gabriel. And he falls down to his knees and worships his Lord who he has faithfully served throughout his life. Do we? Do we read that? No. Not quite. Actually, not at all. But we read that Zechariah responds with doubt. It runs really against the course of his life. Instead of believing, he, he doubts he looks at his, his circumstances and he asks for more proof. Even when a, a messenger of God came and promised a baby boy to Zechariah, it wasn't enough. And we can pause and just think about that for a moment. This wasn't that Zechariah became an, an, an atheist, that he stopped believing in, in a higher being, let alone the, the, the true God of creation no but let he had a moment of doubt and we can have that in our own lives that we can we can say we're christians and we 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 have faith in god but we still have moments where we doubt and those moments of doubt doesn't ruin our testimony or doesn't somehow make us unregenerate doesn't mean that we aren't a christian anymore zachariah didn't stop believing in god in this moment he just had a moment of doubt now that is significant and we don't want to underestimate that or undermine it now the lord may not particularly speak through angels in 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 2019 god now speaks in these in these last days through jesus and through his word Uh, and the difficult reality to grasp is that even when god speaks through his word and when that it's presented through a context like this, that faithful people will look to their circumstances, look to the world around them, what they have, maybe their experiences, their situations, and will naturally doubt. And maybe even question 
and even possibly turn to unfaithfulness. And it's an important point to mull over. See, God continues to work despite his servant acting poorly. And that should uplift, and that should encourage us this morning, that even when the, the children of God, once you and I are, have these moments of doubt or, or even disobedience, when we fail to, to follow God's plans, that God still continues to work out his plans and purposes. One thing that we can be sure of is that, that Zachariah's response is, is far from positive. He's uncertain and his heart doesn't have, seem to have the capacity to believe. He wants more evidence. And don't worry, um, Zachariah gets um, more evidence. He, he gets a sign from the angel Gabriel in verse uh, 20. Let's read verse 20 together. And behold, Gabriel saying, speaking, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which were we, which were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering, or sorry, which were being fulfilled in their time. It's quite the punishment. It might seem a bit harsh that Zechariah be made mute, but it's one that demands that we sit up and and listen and take note of. If we don't believe in God's word. We leave ourselves open to his judgment. Gabriel was an angel of the Lord. He had come to bring good news. He's rightly speaking, uh, he's a gospel messenger. Yet Zechariah fails to accept to believe what Gabriel is saying. He heard the good news, but he doesn't embrace it. And that's a, that's a stern reminder for, for all of us who have heard um, the good news of, of Jesus. They've heard this, the story of Christmas. They've heard about what Jesus would come and do at the cross. They hear that message time and time again, yet decide to reject it and putting off and saying, wait is rejection. See, in order to, to spend eternity lost forever in a godless world, what you have to do is actually step over the good news, the cross of Jesus Christ. You actually have to navigate your way around this message, to disbelieve it, to say, I, I refuse it, to say, I will not bow my knee, and to disbelieve it is to actually open yourself up and to embrace the judgment that will inevitably come. So the application is simple. The invitation is, is sitting in, in front of all of us this morning. It's the, the real gift of this, this time of year. It's Jesus, not the little baby uh, boy just uh, in, covered in swaddling cloth as we, as we love, to, as it feels comfortable to present that image of Jesus. But Jesus, as he would be on a cross, hanging there naked, blood dripping down as he takes the sin and the wrath of God. The one who came to save his people from their sins. That's the real gift of Christmas. And this is God's word to us all day in, day out. Believe in my good news. Hear my good news and believe it. 
Luke finishes the story. And Zacharias serves the, the rest of his time and returns back to his, his humble home with his, his good wife, Elizabeth, yet unable to speak. After a little while, the, the news comes. Elizabeth is, is pregnant. And I wonder if you could just try to put yourself into Zacharias' shoes for that moment. As he hears that news that his wife's pregnant. Oh, how the, the words of Gabriel would have been ringing around his head. Day after day, as he, as, as he couldn't speak, all he could do was think and hear other people speak. He had been reminded of what Gabriel had told him. He told him that his boy was going to be that voice calling out in the wilderness. That his son was going to be preparing the way for the Messiah. That his son was getting the people ready for the matchless King of Kings, Jesus Christ. I'm sure at that moment, Zechariah certainly started to believe. So here we have, in Luke chapter 1, it's maybe not the story we initially associate with Christmas, but here we have God intervening. As the world laid in chaos and, and utter darkness, when God had supposedly been silent for 400 years, God sends really the, the last Old Testament prophet of John the Baptist. The one who would point people to the true light that we celebrate at Christmas. Would we this morning marvel at the greatness of our God, our sovereign God, who uses the, the ordinary and the obscure to bring about his glorious purposes for his own glory and for our good. Let's pray. Our God, we, we thank you for, for the truth of your word. We thank you for this time of year that brings so much joy and comfort and for the reminder that it is to, to our hearts as, as believers. God, we thank you that, that Jesus just did not come in a vacuum. Thank you for the historical context that Jesus came into. That this wasn't just a random event. This was just not coincidence that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. We look at the, the many prophecies outlined in, in the Old Testament. And then we read of, of the testimony and the story of the birth of John the Baptist. Lord, we thank you that this is, this is the, the story of the incarnation is rooted deep into history. Lord, we thank you that for the, 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 the encouragement that you would use us. You'd be mindful of us to use us in spite of ourselves, in spite of our, our orderliness and our sin even our rejection of you, that you would want to use us, that we would be your hands and feet, that we are able to play a part in your kingdom and bringing about your purposes and your will for this world. Lord, would we acknowledge that? Would we not see ourselves as worthless, as useless, but we would humbly come with what we have for who we are and say, God, use me. Use me to bring glory to you. Lord, we thank you 
for the faithfulness that we see in Scripture of many people. And we pray that we would embody that, that we would emulate that as we are faithful to you, as you have been so faithful and kind and gracious to us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.